The Donington Affair, Part 1, by Max Pemberton. This is a LibriVox recording. All the LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sean. The Donington Affair, Part 1. My name is John Barrington Cope and I had been priest in charge of the parish of Barrow in the Vale for 21 months. I last saw Evelyn Dynton alive on Sunday evening at a quarter past ten o'clock. I had supped at Barrow Close, as it had been my privilege to do almost every Sunday evening since I came to the parish. The fact that my fiancée, Harriet Donington, was and is at Bath made no difference. Sir Barrow Donington has few friends. He is not a man who loves the society of other men, nor, for that matter, of women. It may be that I understand him a little better than his fellows. I am welcome at Borrow Close, and there is no other house which has a prior claim upon me. I saw Evelyn Donington alive and well at a quarter past ten on the evening of Sunday last, the 24th day of July. She came to the porch with me to tell me of a letter she had received from Harriet on the previous day, and I said good night to her. The rectory stands, perhaps a third part of a mile across the park, and is best reached by a bridle path through what is known as Adam's Thicket. The way is dark and shut in by the magnificent beaches for which Borrow is famous. I saw no living thing as I returned to the rectory, nor heard any sound that was ominous. Two hours later, a footman from the close awakened me to say that Evelyn was dead. Murdered, sir, he gasped, and without another word, he ran on headlong toward the doctor's house. I had fallen into a light sleep when this man's ring awakened me. There had been much trouble at Borrow Close since I came to the parish. The world is well acquainted with the nature of this, and knows much of the shame which has overtaken the Dynton family. Whatever sympathy it may have withheld from Sir Borrow Donington himself, it has lavished freely upon his daughters. To me, Evelyn was already as a sister. I was to have married Harriet in September, though God knows what may be in store for us now. Men deride omens, though often they are but the mind's logic waging a war upon our optimism. 
Though the affair of South B. Donington would appear to have been settled by his conviction and imprisonment, I dreaded from the first that such could not be the end of it. And it was of South B. Donington, Sir Barrow's only son, that I had been dreaming when the footman awakened me. What a sardonic chapter in the history of human nature. An only son, a wealthy father. Upon the one side, a profligacy, almost without parallel. Upon the other side of a parismony, stupendous in its ironic selfishness. South B. Donington was sent to Eton and to Trinity, Cambridge, as an army candidate. A disgraceful affair at a gambling den in London, with a subsequent appearance at a police court, finished his university career in his first term. He could not even pass the trivial examination now demanded for Sandhurst. He would suggest no other vocation. The man became a derelict in the dangerous seas of London's underworld. In vain his sisters pleaded with Sir Barrow. The baronet had finished with his son. A man of iron resolution which nothing could bend, he swore that Southby should never enter his house again. There followed the cataclysm. We heard of the boy's arrest in London upon a charge of forgery. He was committed for trial, defended with what money his sisters could supply him, sent to the Old Bailey, convicted. The sentence was one of three years' penal servitude. We learned that he had been taken to Wormwood Scrubs, and nine months later that he was at Parkhurst. It is no place here to dwell upon the secrets of the stricken house or of the aftermath of this terrible downfall. Barrow Close is an old mansion lying between Ashdown Forest and Crowborough. It has always been remote from men and affairs, and there is no domain in all England so wonderful in its solitudes. All about it is the forest. The very park is primeval woodland. Here abounding in undergrowth, so thick that the foot of man might never have been set therein. There characterized by marshy pools and groves, where noonday is but a shimmer of reluctant light. Few were admitted to the house even in the days when Lady Donington was its mistress. Since her death, it has become medieval in its isolation. 
the old baronet had nothing in common with his neighbors. His daughters were always afraid of him, and they go through life as if it were on tiptoe, fearing that if they speak above a whisper, they will awaken the curiosity of the world beyond their gates. It is true that Southby flouted the sanctities of this retreat despite the baronet's displeasure. Parties of wild undergraduates made the welkin ring during the vacations. The story of Evelyn and Harriet's beauty was not unknown in the courts at Cambridge. But few of the boys had the courage to persist. And I think that even Southby himself was astonished when Captain Willie Kennington appeared suddenly upon the scene as a suitor for Evelyn's hand and was not to be repulsed even by Sir Barrow's savage discouragement. Captain Kennington had met Evelyn at her aunt's house in Kensington some three months before the downfall. Her womanly gifts should have made an appeal to any man who became well acquainted with them, and I do not wonder that the young soldier surrendered to the spell. Very simple in all her ideas, not a little afraid of the world, yet gifted with an imagination which years of solitary reading had stimulated, she seemed to be at once the woman and the child, wise above her years, yet afflicted by those ideals for which woman often pays so dearly. Fear of her father forbade the immediate acceptance of the soldier's advances, which her heart dictated. She returned to borrow clothes, and was followed there shortly by the captain himself. What was my astonishment to hear a few days later that Sir Borrow had refused all discussion of the matter, and in one of those violent paroxysms of temper with which neither God nor man could reason, had ordered the captain from his house. To give his due, Southby played a man's part in this affair. He interceded warmly for his sister, returning from South Africa for that purpose. The scene between father and son is remembered at the close as the culminating episode of an estrangement as discreditable to one as to the other. Passion dominated it and set finality upon it. No word was spoken between these two men until the end. Three months later, Southby was a convict, and I remained the one man who visited the baronet in the days of the shame. These are the events of sixteen months ago. I have already disclaimed any intention of dwelling upon 
the intimate days of sorrow which followed after. The evil that men do lives after them. And while for the world the tragedy was but a nine days wonder, it lay heavily upon the house of Borrow. No longer did the old baronet receive the visits of the few friends hitherto admitted to the close. He shut the doors alike upon the old world and the new. His daughters saw no one but the servants and myself. In their turn, his neighbors shrank from him. Men had come to say that lust of gold drove Southby to the crime, and to believe that the boy was less guilty than the father. The one man who stood by the stricken family was Captain Kennington, who owed so little to the baronet. Now, in the darkest hour, he came forward to demand Evelyn's hand anew. It went without saying that she would not accept him. A rare type of womanhood. The very fact that she loved was the barrier between them. Nothing, she felt, could ever blot out the shame of this happening or minimize its consequences. The harvest of sin was not gathered in Parkhurst prison, but here in the ancient house, where women reaped with sickles of tears. My own relations with Harriet were, God be praised, but superficially affected by Southby's downfall. We had learned to know each other so well before the trouble came, that it but set a seal upon our mutual sense of help and sacrifice. And although I knew she would not marry me immediately, I left the future to lead us as it might. Sir Donington himself now seems to find in my society the sole consolation of his declining years. He did not go to church, but I visited them for worship early every Sunday morning, and was always at the close to supper when at the rectory. So the months rolled on, and time the healer came to our aid. The bitterness of fear and doubt had passed down and given place to a brave attempt to face the future. We made many plans for Southby upon his release, and were determined to start him in a farm in South Africa if we could. Kennington went so far as to visit the prison and see the convict. His own father was one of the visiting inspectors, as it chanced, and so an advantage was permitted him. He told us that he found Southby quite resigned to his fate, and he spoke of him as a man who was convinced that he had not committed a crime, 
but had been the victim of those who had betrayed him when they discovered that nothing was to be extorted from the baronet. Parkhurst, it seems, is the gentleman's prison, and Southby was in aristocratic company there. I confess that the intimation was not without its saving humor, and permitted some reflection upon the permanence of those social aspirations which could afflict men even in a prison. Better, it appeared, to pick oakum with a lord than to earn an honest living among plebeians. Kennington spoke of cheerfulness and of content, but I remembered afterward one phrase in his letter which should have struck me as significant. Prison makes strange bedfellows, and so far as man may have a confidence in captivity, Southby had found one in a man by the name of Mester. This fellow said Kennington, is the cheeriest soul possible. He has been well educated in France, where he fell upon evil times. Then he became chauffeur to an Austrian baron, entered a motorcar factory at Chouren, turned his attention to flying at Issy, and finally was accused of a savage assault and an attempt to rob an old lady at Dover, who was about to establish him in a motor car business there. Mester declared to the end that the crime was the work of others. He protested that he was the victim of circumstances and that the clues upon which the police convicted him were false. Nevertheless, he was found guilty and sentenced to four years' penal servitude upon the day following Southby's conviction. Between these men, a strange friendship took root. Each believed himself wrongfully convicted, each could sympathize with the other. And just as Mester declared that he would bring the old baronet to his senses when he got out, so could Southby interest himself in Mester's story and implore certain old colleagues on the press to investigate it. As we know, one great novelist has already busied himself with the affair and is convinced of the man's innocence. Admittedly, a person of no stable character and unquestionably the associate of thieves, there would yet seem to be a doubt whether the graver crime were committed and quite a reasonable Supposition that the police may have been in air. Mester himself did not hesitate to affirm that if he were free for a month, 
he would establish his innocence beyond all question. So convinced was he of this, that he appears to have told Southby quite plainly that he would escape from Parkhurst if the opportunity presented itself. I thought nothing of the matter at the time, and indeed, the threat must be one often made by prisoners to whom crime has not become a habit and the cell a refuge. But I confess that astonishment was no word for it when, a few weeks later, upon opening my morning paper, I read that two men had escaped from the Parkhurst and, despite the efforts of the police, were still at large. Southby and Mester, I said to myself, I was not wrong, as you will presently hear. Here was an upset, if you will, and one to send me running to the close with the tidings. Sir Borrow himself I would not tell, dreading the effect of the news upon a mind so deranged. But Evelyn and Harriet heard me eagerly, and the former I began to suspect was already in possession of the story. This fact did not in the beginning impress me as it should have done. Some letter, I thought, must have come from Southby himself. And yet, had I reflected, I would have perceived that such a thing was hardly possible under the circumstances. The man had escaped but yesterday, and even had a letter been posted from the Isle of Wight, or the mainland on the previous evening, it would not have reached Borrow Close at nine o'clock. Later on, I discovered quite accidentally that Captain Kennington hinted at some such possibility in a letter received on the previous day, and whatever thoughts the discovery suggested, I kept them strictly to myself. The immediate thing was the excitement the news occasioned at the close, and the momentous events which must follow upon it. For my own part, I was early of the opinion that the fugitives would swiftly be overtaken, and that that would be the end of the matter. Their escape briefly narrated in the newspapers, had been admirably contrived. It appears that they scaled a high wall at a moment when a heavy mist drifted across the island from the mainland. That they then crossed an enclosure in which other prisoners were at work, climbed a second wall by the aid of a silk ladder which they left behind them, and so made their way to the sea. Authority believed that their flight was there cut short.
in that they had not succeeded in reaching the mainland. But another account spoke of a mysterious motorboat which had been seen recently off St. Catherine's Point, and, remembering Mester's acquaintance with the motor fraternity and its less desirable characters, the writer of the report seemed to be of the opinion that this might have some connection with the matter. The latter, I must confess, occurred to me as a plausible deduction. These flying people are unusually clever. They possess a dairy which is proved, and their resources are many. I detected now the meaning of Southby's friendship for this undesirable mechanic, and I saw that the men were pledged to make the attempt together. For the moment, it looked as though they had succeeded. It was a little before nine o'clock when I arrived at the close, and not until after lunch that I left. As usual, Sir Barrow spent the morning about his gardens and kept me some while with him speaking of this plant or that with which I was always familiar, but never naming the son who would succeed to this splendid inheritance. When he retired to his study at twelve o'clock, I took the girls aside and resumed a conversation so full of meaning for us all. Naturally, we asked each other many questions which we were unable to answer. Where would Southby go if he reached the mainland? Could he get money? Would he return to the borough? If he comes here, said I, he is lost. It will be the first place the police will watch. Harriet agreed with me in this. Yet where else could he go with any prospect of getting money by which alone ultimate success could be assured? We thought of many places, but of one with conviction. Sir Barrow's sister, the aged Lady Rosmar, then lived at Bath. She had been staunch to the boy so far as her means permitted, and might be still a friend to him in such an emergency as this. We decided that Harriet should go to Bath without loss of time, in case she could be of any assistance there. Evelyn and I, meanwhile, would watch and wait at the borough. God knows what we hoped to do if the boy came there, yet I think we both prayed for his coming. It seemed such an impossible thing that he could evade the hue and cry which must attend this flight. Yet if he did evade it, 
Might not we take up his burden and start him in that new life wherein so much might be achieved if the lesson had been truly learned? Foolish the hope may have been, yet it came natural to those who had suffered so much and over whom the prison gate was ever the emblem of a terrible sorrow. We believed that Southby would come, and in ten days' time, our faith was justified. He was there at Borrow Close, the police upon his heels, his own father ignorant that the house harbored him. Of such dire things have I now to tell in the story that comes after. I have said that we supposed the house would be watched by the police, and in this we were not mistaken. Frequently, in the few days immediately prior to Southby's return, I had seen strange men in the park, and more than once I had been stopped upon an idle pretense and questioned concerning Sir Borrow and his affairs. Such a subterfuge would have deceived no one, and, fortunately, I was able to deal with the men quite frankly. You are a police officer, I said to one of them, and he did not deny it. The lad's sure to come here, sir, was his answer. And if he does, we shall take him. There isn't a road within ten miles we are not watching. We fell to other talk, and chiefly of the escape. Officially, the police thought there had been some connivance on the part of the warders, but of this I naturally knew nothing. The young men had a lot of friends between them, the detective said. And as for Lionel Mester, he knows half the crooks in Europe. I replied that in such a case, the friends in question might be expected to shelter their comrades. And, said I, it is idle to look for your men here. Surely you know of the relations between Sir Borrow and his son? He was much interested in this, and questioned me closely a proceeding I did not resent under the circumstances. A few days later, I was stopped in the park by an American lady and her daughter, who pretended to be much interested in the old place, and asked me if it were not possible to get permission to visit it. In these, I recognized also the agents of the police, and I put them off with what excuses I could. Not that it would have mattered at such a time, 
for Southby had not then returned. He was to come three days afterward at dead of night, and the two who were to know of his coming would have stood at nothing for his sake. They were his sister Evelyn and Wellman the butler, who had loved Southby as his own son. It was from Wellman himself that I heard the news at nine o'clock on the following morning. He came carrying a pretended letter from Sir Barrow, and not until we were alone in my study and the door shut behind us did he dare to speak freely. Mr. Southby's home, sir, he said in a whisper. He's in the priest's room. I feared to speak for a moment. Instantly, I had visions of the hunted lad fleeing from thicket to thicket of the forest he knew so well, and finally gaining that deep glen wherein is the subterranean entrance to the close. That he had thought of it when none of us remembered. Of course, the police would know nothing of that. The very servants, save Wellman alone, are in ignorance of the existence of this passage, and locally it is believed that it perished long ago. Sir Barrow let them think so. It was one of his humors to have the place opened up by the engineers who came from London to sink his artisan well. He liked to go to and fro as he pleased to catch his servants when they least expected him, and so he used the priest's room for the purpose, or did use it until the tragedy happened. Nothing afterward interested him. The secret chamber remained unopened after Southby was convicted. The rest of us, I think, had almost forgotten its existence. The chamber lies at the western end of the long gallery. There is an octagon tower there, with an ancient stone staircase cunningly built within its walls. To this you gain access from the gallery by opening a panel upon the right-hand side of the smaller chimney. The room lies at the foot of one flight of stairs and is lighted from two narrow windows giving upon the battlements. These are filled by stained glass of the 14th century and shows former abbots of Barrow in Alba and Chasuble. The room itself is large and commodious, and has a fireplace and an alcove for the bed. Those who desire to go from it to the forest descend the staircase until they find themselves in the old crypt 
which dates from Saxon times. The subterranean passage leads from that to Adam's thicket, where it enters an ancient well, long dried up, and now but a pit of grass and bramble. I did not doubt that Southby had gained the forest by a devious route and had made his way by one of those paths which no stranger would discover. And so he had gone straight to the priest's chamber and thence to Evelyn's bedroom. He waked her about one this morning said Wellman, who still appeared to tremble with excitement of the news. They wouldn't let you know sooner, sir, for fear of the police. Miss Evelyn is dreadfully afraid that the squire will find out, and so I came to you at once. Lucky for us, it was only yesterday afternoon that Superintendent Matthews searched the clothes from garret to cellar. He must have had wind that Mr. Southby was on the road. I was astonished to hear this. Superintendent Matthews, yesterday, I exclaimed. Is it really possible and Miss Evelyn told me nothing of it? But of course, it may have been difficult to say. Does he know anything of the priest's hold, Wellman? Surely you don't fear that. He shook his head, being a man of uncommon caution. They know a great deal too much nowadays, sir. More's the pity. The question is, what are we to do with the young master since Miss Evelyn is at her wit's end? She would be pleased to see you at the coils. Indeed, and she would. It's a hard task for a young lady, as you can well imagine, sir. I agreed, and, putting on my hat, went over with him immediately. Our way lay through Adam's thicket, and I confess that I suffered some alarm when a stranger appeared upon our path not a hundred paces from the ancient basin by which the passage is reached. He was a short, thick-set man, wearing a serge suit with black leather leggings and a peaked cap, and when he saw us he stopped abruptly for a moment, then turned his back upon us, and pretended to light a cigarette while we passed. He is no policeman, I said to Wellman when the stranger was out of hearing. The old servant agreed with me. But he might be an inquiry agent, sir. I've heard tell in London of the tricks they play with their clothes. Don't trust him too far. I am not going to trust him at all, said I. 
The fellow looked to me as though he were a chauffeur. A bad lot, believe me, sir. There's been few honest men upon wheels since they robbed us of our horses. A man wants the nose of a setter to keep track of such as him. I wouldn't trust one of them with a silver-plated soup ladle upon my word I wouldn't. I told him he was a laudator temporis octi, but as that conveyed nothing to him, we pushed on and found Evelyn in the boudoir. She was dreadfully agitated, but Sir Barrow being there, no word of the affair might pass between us. The baronet plainly thought that his daughter had become hysterical, and when I was alone with him, he hinted that she must have had some news from that damned scoundrel. Whatever it is, he added, I don't want to hear of it or of him. It would be a great day for me if the fellow were six feet underground, and I hope to God he soon will be. That's the truth, Cope, and none of your philosophy can change it. I no longer have a son. I am trying to forget that I ever had one. I shrank from his anger, knowing well how little such a man would suffer a rebuke. Happily, he set out to drive into the town almost immediately, and Evelyn and I went at once to the priest's hole and interviewed Southby. He was in a sorry plight, I must say his face and hands torn by the brambles of the thickets, his clothes splashed with mud, his beard unshaved, and his eyes bloodshot. I thought also a little delirious from want of food and exposure, and he talked incoherently of ships and the sea, of men who had betrayed him, and of others who were his friends. By and by, when he became calmer, he told me that the ignominy of prison affected him to such an extent that he would have gone mad if he had remained at Parkhurst. I couldn't have done it, Cope. By God, I couldn't, he said. You don't know what it means to a man who has lived as I have. I had to go, or it would have been all up with me. If they take me, I will shoot myself. That's an oath, and I'll keep it. But, cried I, whatever will you do, Southby? You must know that we cannot long protect you here. He laughed defiantly, pushing the black hair from his forehead quite in the old way. Lionel will do it, he said. I trust Lionel. He got me out. He'll see I don't get in again. You must know, Lionel, 
He's a white man all through, and the prison that can hold him has got to be made. Why, it was his idea about the motorboat. Who else would have thought of it? His and his friend at Hendon. They picked us up in the cove at high tide, and we were landed at Hailing Island before morning. I knew we should get through when Lionel undertook it. Then, exclaimed I, quite at hazard, Captain Kennington knew nothing of it? His brow darkened at this. He looked at Evelyn curiously, and appeared afraid to speak out. No, I don't trust Kennington. Not much. Mind what you're doing in that quarter, Evelyn. Kennington isn't 30 cents. You remember it. She flashed out at this, a girl of spirit and a good heart. Do not say a word against Captain Kennington. She cried. He is the only friend you ever had who remained staunch to you. You should be grateful to him. He still persisted, though with a weakening resolution. That may or may not be. It's my opinion he tried to give us away, and I shall stick to it. Now give me a drink, for God's sake. I am as dry as a camel. She fetched him a brandy and soda, and he drank it eagerly. It was already a danger to pass to and from the long gallery, and I began to perceive the peril of the situation. Let the servants know, and sooner or later the news would go to the village, and then to the police. When we discussed it frankly between ourselves, there seemed to be but one solution. Evelyn must be ill, and Harriet must be recalled from the bath to wait upon her. Meanwhile, Wellman must have a confidant, and none seemed better suited to the purpose than Turner, the head housemaid. Sooner or later, this woman would discover us. We determined that should be sooner, and, calling her into the conference, we put our fortunes into her hands. Good woman, she had a brother of her own, and Evelyn was beloved by them all. We made our plans, and for the moment they were successful. Harriet, unfortunately, could not return from Bath, her aunt being taken seriously ill and really requiring her assistance. Evelyn, however, feigned an indisposition very cleverly, and although it put me to some conscientious difficulty, I suffered myself to think of the greater good of that unhappy family and to acquiesce. Nevertheless, 
I understood that it was but a brief respite. The perils of the situation were manifest. Any day, any hour might discover us. And we began to go as those who feared their own shadows. Perhaps my fears may have been responsible for a delusion, but there were moments when I thought that Sir Barrow suspected us. His manner became suddenly aggressive, and he questioned me more closely than he had done for a long time. Had I heard from that damned son of his? Was Evelyn worrying about the worthless scoundrel? To all of which I responded with what wit I could, though God knows my position was difficult. Later on, I discovered him in Evelyn's bedroom, and that very night, after dinner, he spoke of Kennington. Oddly enough, his opinion of that gallant soldier was exactly that of his son. He did not trust him, doubted his record, and stigmatized him most unjustly as a penniless adventurer. As to my knowledge, the captain is in possession of an income of 800 pounds a year. I resented the slander and did not fear to speak my mind. The result was a sharp quarrel, and the expression upon his part of a shabby apology, with which in any other circumstances I would have been far from satisfied. As it was, I had to bear with him and to listen while he told me that, whatever happened, he would not have Kennington in the house again. Then he went off to his study, I to the priest's room to tell them of my suspicions. Southby had always been afraid of his father. My news alarmed him, and he did not hesitate to affirm that the old man would deliver him up to the police should he be discovered at the close. Evelyn herself appeared to be of the same opinion, and when we were alone she confessed the terror of her situation. Captain Kennington is coming here at the weekend, she said. I told her what Sir Barrow had said, and it did but alarm her more. Sometimes I wish I were dead, she declared, and I, who knew how much that gentle soul had suffered, prayed to God that strength might be granted her. The following night I was to meet Lionel Mester in the thicket, and to experience an apprehension more acute than 
any I had yet suffered in this woeful affair. It was the Sabbath eve, and I was returning from the close to the choir practice in our beautiful old parish church. A hundred yards from the well's head, where the secret entrance lies, I met again the short, thick-set man whom Wellman had declared to be a detective. He stopped, and begging me to step aside into the thicket, he introduced himself immediately. You'll have heard of me, sir. Lionel Mester, Mr. Southby's pal. Yes, I said. I have heard of you. Why do you come to this dangerous place? Because there's something Southby must know, and it can't come any other way. You see him every day, and can take this letter to him. I've been hanging about nearly a week trying to get it delivered. Usually I don't trust devil dodgers. Not much. But you've got a decent mug on you, and I'm going to trust you. Take him this letter, and tell him if he acts on it. It's all right, and the wheels go round. Otherwise, I'd do a double watch and be damned to it. Lord, I've been sleeping on stinging nettles for a week, and that's about enough of it. Tell Southby so, and you'll see no more of me. He thrust a bulky letter into my hand, and was about to say more when we heard a sound of footsteps, and instantly he plunged into the undergrowth with the agility of a wildcat. He was shod, I saw, in rubber-soled shoes, and carried a formidable stick. But the quickness of his movements was the surprising thing, and uttering but one word, police, he disappeared from my view. For my part, I thrust the letter into the inner pocket of my coat and at once regained the path. Fifty paces farther on, I passed Superintendent Matthews and exchanged a good night with him. He appeared to be in a hurry, and was going toward the hall. But he did not stop to gossip with me, as he usually does, and for that I was grateful. It will be understood that this unexpected turn perplexed me very much. I had expected that Lionel Mester would come to borrow sooner or later, but now that he had come, I perceived how considerable a danger he must be to us all. It was not to be hidden from me that I myself 
might be the victim of this unhappy family and must answer to the law for the part that I had played. So much I was willing to do for a woman's sake, but now that discovery trod upon our heels, and all the shame and suffering of exposure hovered in the shadows about that ancient house, I confess that my courage almost failed me. The letter seemed a damning document which would convict me in any court. Yet I determined to deliver it, and that very night, about ten o'clock, I went up to the hall and put it into Evelyn's hands. Upon my return, an unknown man followed me through the thicket, and watched me enter the rectory. I believe that he was a police officer, though whether he were so or not mattered little since the letter was delivered. That night I slept but ill, fearing so many things, dreading the peril of a situation which had become almost intolerable. The next day was the Sabbath, given almost entirely to the schools and the church, and it was not until we sat down to supper at the close that I got the news of Evelyn. She had given out that she was a little better and would sit down with us, the few words we exchanged in the porch when I said good night to her were of some moment, though not unexpected. Southby is going tonight, she said. I answered, thank God, for I knew that none of us could stand the strain of it much longer. And so we parted and I was never to see her alive again. So brave and gentle she was, blessed among women truly, an offering to man's sin, a martyr for whom men's tears should fall. They heard a loud cry in the house a little before midnight. Sir Barrow was awake, and first upon the scene. They found her lying at the foot of the staircase, which leads down from the long gallery to the secret room. Evidently, there had been a struggle. A jagged bar of iron lay upon the stairs at her feet. The lamp she had carried was shattered. The very window in the angle of the octagon was broken, and the glass littered about. What was not a little remarkable was the discovery of nine pounds in gold wrapped in a yellow kid glove, the very shape and color of the gloves always worn by Captain Kennington. She was dressed in a long bedgown, I should tell you, and wore a dressing gown over it.
the door of the secret chamber stood open, but no one was to be discerned within. Southby had fled the house. Sir Borrow and Wellman alone stooped to the assistance of the stricken woman. She was quite dead, a terrible wound in the throat having deprived her of her life almost instantaneously. Naturally, the police were called upon the instant, and not a moment was lost by them. Beaters began to search every thicket of the forest round about. There were motors abroad every road, yet nothing was discovered, not a shadow of a clue to be found. Even Captain Kennington could offer no suggestion. I discovered to my surprise that he had come to borrow on Saturday evening as he promised, but hearing Evelyn's story, had gone to the town to sleep. The hue and cry waked him to such a morn as few men are called upon to live. And so here is this terrible crime committed, and no man to be brought to justice for it. God send us enlightenment that the guilty may be punished. End of The Donington Affair, Part 1